Let's begin this hour of the Sunrise Morning Show in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. God of every nation and people, from the very beginning of creation, you have made manifest your love. When our need for a Savior was great, you sent your Son to be born of the Virgin Mary. To our lives, he brings joy and peace, justice, mercy, and love. Lord, bless all who look upon a manger. May it remind us of the humble birth of Jesus and raise our thoughts to him, who is God with us and Savior of all, and who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, and welcome to this special Christmas edition of the Best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and alongside Matt Swaim, we head back to the archives today to share with you some of our favorite interviews of days gone by. And because we are still in the Christmas season... It will all have a focus on the nativity of Christ and all of the various ways that we can reflect on it. So hope you can stick around and enjoy the entire hour ahead. We'll get started right now at two minutes past the hour. Matt? I'm Matt Swaim, joined now by Adrian Gannon from Stella Morris, and you may remember them. They used to be called the Apostleship of the Sea, but they work to minister to seafarers around the world. Uh, who are out there doing all kinds of invisible work that basically keeps the whole world running. Adrian, welcome to the show. Thank you, and thanks for having me on the Sunrise Morning Show. It's a pleasure to have you, and I've been thinking about your apostolate a lot lately. There are so many headlines about you know supply chain interruptions and difficulty getting things, and oh, how are we going to buy all these presents You know, with the ways that the shipping industry has been affected, and and I feel like nobody talks about the people, right? The invisible people who are working away from their families for months at a time to make this happen. Um, how are you ministering to these seafarers uh, who are trying to get the world back on track, uh, especially at Christmas? Yes, you're right that people often forget about um, the people manning the ships out in the ocean. People, you know, recognize that goods arrive, but they don't think about the human cost of getting them here. And, um, you know, time to time, things happen that, that do bring this to the attention of the wider public. And I think when there was that incident with the ever-given container ship stuck in the Suez Canal, people, you know, focused on, on the supply chain in a way that perhaps they hadn't before. But also, as you rightly say, the pandemic because that has been very difficult for uh, seafarers. In many cases, they have not been allowed off ships. And you can imagine what that, that's like. So if you're a seafarer and you um, spend your life on the seas, you, you obviously look forward to your shore leave getting off the ship. But, you know, what they've found over the last uh, year or two is that in, in some countries they're not welcome off the ship um, because of the 
the concerns that they might be spreading coronavirus from the ship to the shore, or you know, the ship may not want them getting off in case they pick up the coronavirus on the on the shore and then bring it back on. So a lot of them have been confined to their ships for um, months and months and months. So, yeah, when it comes to Christmas time, we try to give them the support we can. We will go on board ships when we're allowed, and when we won't, we'll go as far as the gangway or as far as we're allowed to go. We will provide seafarers with Christmas presents. There'll be warm clothing, woolly hats, uh, chocolate. We provide Wi-Fi access. We bring mobile Wi-Fi units so that uh, seafarers can call their family back home. Uh, and where we give uh, faith resources, rosaries, prayer cards, and where possible, we, we try and take them to mass if we're allowed to under COVID restrictions at the moment, or we try to get mass on board. But both of those last two things are difficult uh, this year because of COVID. Yeah, I was going to ask a little bit about um, getting the sacraments to these seafarers. Uh, if they can't come off the boat, <laughs> right, and you can't go on the boat, that makes things a little bit difficult uh, for Eucharistic ministers <laughs> or for priests to be able to make that connection. I, I was wondering, is it more common, um, and I'm sure you know, COVID has very much affected the way that you're going to answer this question, is it more common to be able to have a, a small mass in a room on the boat or, or just on the dock nearby, uh, or is it more common that people just simply bring the Blessed Sacrament uh, already consecrated to these workers uh, where they are? Great question, and the answer is, is we do a bit of all of that. I mean, before COVID, you're, you're correct, right? we, would do, we would do masses on board and, and Christmas masses and, and other sacraments. Um, since COVID, it has got harder. Having said that, there are some places that we can do it. And last Christmas, um, we did manage to, to have a couple of masses said on a, on a cruise ship in Edinburgh Port in Scotland. Um, so, and I'm sure in some of the other countries as well, and I'm just talking from the UK perspective, um, which is where I'm based at the moment, but, but as you know, we've got chaplains all over the world. But even here in the UK, where, where COVID has been bad, there have been places where we've been able to do it. We also had um, a situation where we had a priest giving confession in his car just on the um, dock just next to the ship. So his car was... Um, that the seafarers were allowed to get off the ship as far as his car. They hadn't been to confession for, for, for quite a while um, because of COVID, but they wanted confession. So our uh, chaplain was there in his car. And then after every confession, um, the car was cleaned, uh, disinfected, and then the priest would get back in the front and the seafarer would get in the back and have his confession. And then uh, they both leave and the car was recleaned again. So we, we did it that way. And we do um, have Eucharistic ministers who do bring the Blessed Sacrament as well. We do have some of our chaplains are Eucharistic ministers, and they have been doing that. Again, the, you know, the rules have changed even throughout this year. There's different rules at different times. But where it has been possible, um, we have done that. So the, the answer is we're finding ways. We are finding ways. We're going to be creative, but we are finding ways to, to do the ministry. And we're also doing um, digital chaplaincy. So we have been broadcasting the gospel so we have a gospel reading and reflection on YouTube, and we send a link to that by email to some cruise ships so the crews can watch it. We also have a mass from the Philippines, Manila, which is submitted um, on an app so people can download it from their mobile phones from the middle of the ocean if they've got the reception. Uh, we also have radio uh, programs as well. So one of our chaplains is on a radio program once a week, praying for seafarers. And we also have a prayer service on Facebook uh, that one of our chaplains runs. So Facebook Live, so people can, uh, seafarers can join in from that. Again, if they've got connectivity, 
and if they're off shift, then they can uh, then they can participate in that. So we have been finding creative ways of doing this during the lockdown. Well, I know you rely on priests who, uh, you know, are not themselves seafarers or dock workers, uh, who you know are, are perhaps uh, parish priests who do this when they are available to do so. And uh, we only have just a moment left, but I wonder. I mean, we have lots and lots of uh, people listening from port cities, you know, Houston and Baltimore and New Orleans and, and many others and, and many priests listening right now. Uh, very quickly, is there anything that you would say to them to encourage them to possibly um, make themselves available through Stella Maris uh, to minister to seafarers uh, when they can do so? Yes, please. We rely quite heavily on volunteer support. Um there's a huge amount of work to be done, and everyone can help. There's lots of different parish priests, and some of them, they do what we call cruise chaplaincy. So that means when they're off uh, on holiday from their, their parish, they can, if they want, you know, join a cruise. Again, you know, when they're running, there's a few of them. Remember, there are some going on this year, and we do have some priests covering sort of Christmas cruises, and they're doing, uh, yeah, for many priests, it's a busy time of year Christmas. But, you know, there are times when priests can be off duty over the summer and they, they can join a cruise and be the chaplain on the cruise. Um, there's lots of things, as you say, that can be done in port. Um, we need all the help we can get. So if people are interested, please contact us via our website, which is www.stellamaris.org.uk or info at stellamarismail.org uh, and we'll be happy to hear from you and get you involved. Thank you. Well, just as a side note, I went on a Christmas cruise several years ago uh, and there was midnight mass on the boat. There was a cruise chaplain there, and we showed up, and 90% of the people who were there for midnight mass with us were boat workers, uh, many of them below decks yeah. who we hadn't seen the entire time. So it was awesome to be able to celebrate mass with them over Christmas. And yeah, very much a, a large number of seafarers are Catholic. A lot of the Philippines and Goa, Carolina, India, Poland, Ukraine. Oh, that's exactly what countries. was happening there. Well, very cool. Well, thank you so much, Adrian. We've got Stella Morris linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Merry Christmas. And the same to you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. For 150 years, the Komboni missionaries have followed in the footsteps of their founders and Daniel Komboni. We are an active missionary group sharing our deep faith in God through service to the poorest and most abandoned people around the world, satisfying both the physical and spiritual needs of the people in our mission. Please support our mission work with a generous year-end gift today. Thank you for your prayers and kindness. Give today at kombonimissionaries.org. That is kombonimissionaries.org. Support for the Sunrise Morning Show is from Visiting Angels. Visiting Angels provides experienced, compassionate care to millions of aging adults nationwide by keeping them safe and healthy in the comfort of their own home. Whether it's a short break for caregivers or for long-term assistance, Visiting Angels provides hygiene, meals, light housework, companionship, and more. And services are available up to 24 hours per day. Visiting Angels, online at visitingangels.com. That's visitingangels.com. Franchise opportunities available. Business owners are starting to think outside the box to find new customers. You can reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners by underwriting The Sunrise Morning Show. Each weekday morning, listeners across the U.S. and around the globe can hear your message for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on The Sunrise Morning Show. To find out how it works, email me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. EWTN. 
teaching the truth. I am a Protestant currently who's really read my way here, a large part due to Mother Angelica and programs like yours. Can't even tell you how excited I am to finally have the courage to call. I've been listening to you guys for quite some time, and I get a lot of great information. I just started listening probably like three months ago, and I'm obsessed, and I listen to Mass every morning, too. listening to the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, joined now by Joseph Pierce, who's with the Augustine Institute and the St. Austin Review. Go join his inner sanctum and support his work through his website, jpierce.co. And he, of course, the author of many books, including Poems Every Catholic Should Know. Good morning, Joseph. Good morning, Anna. So today we are going to be discussing a poem entitled a Christmas Carol by the poet Christina Rossetti. First of all, tell us about her. Yeah, well, she was uh, a 19th century poet and a member of a group uh, known as the Pre-Raphaelites. They're actually often known as the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, although she's obviously a sister, uh, so to speak. And she was actually the sister of Dante Gabriel Rossetti, one of the poets and artists of the Pre-Raphaelites. So the Pre-Raphaelites were mostly a movement in the visual arts, in painting, and, and some of the most beautiful paintings of the 19th century hmm. were painted by this by this group of artists. But they also did write, um, uh, produce literature as well. And Christina Rossetti, uh, as a poet, was uh, a leading figure. And the, the key thing about them, from a Catholic perspective, the Pre-Raphaelites, they're a manifestation of the neo-medievalism that arose out of uh, the romanticism with the poets such as uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge and William Blake. We basically, we had three neo-medievalist movements, the Oxford movement in the Church of England, from which um, John Henry Newman uh, emerged, revival in architecture, uh, and the pre-Raphaelites in art. So she's a part of this neo-medieval revival of the 19th century. Interesting. So... Can you tell us what what would be some of the hallmarks of neo-medieval or or pre-Raphaelite poetry specifically? Well, the pre-Raphaelites as a movement was was seeking um, um, a a rediscovery uh, of pre-Raphael vision of beauty and art. So in other words, to go back to the early Renaissance and to the medieval. So, you know, as their subject matter, they they chose um, King Arthur, works of chivalry they 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 were very fond of shakespeare as well as shakespeare's plays but even then you know they they, they depicted them in terms of the medieval chivalrous presentation so it's trying to rediscover a purer way of thinking and a purer understanding of beauty and truth uh, that that that, uh, that they saw as belonging to the middle ages and the early renaissance as opposed to modernity they didn't like raphael well, they thought he was his his uh, manner is his realism, his uh, his uh, turning away from, should we say, art as pointing to God and being something which is more humanistic and really huh. just about man. They saw that as a step in the wrong direction. That's interesting because Raphael's all over the Vatican. Oh, he, absolutely! Oh, he's beautiful. I'm not. I'm not opposed to Raphael. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just. I, I'm. I'm kind of surprised. You know, like to. I don't know. Anyway, today we are specifically discussing a poem by Christina Rossetti called "A Christmas Carol." Uh, before you get to reading it, Joseph, could you just tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, well, it's you know it's it's better known to many people because it's been set to music uh, by its first name in the bleak midwinter. And my oh, two favorite. Are you going to sing my, it? 
<laughs> you, mercifully for, for, for you, no. Um, <laughs> um, but, my, but my two favourite Christmas carols are probably uh, um, uh, The Holly and the Ivy and, and, and This in the Big Midwinter. Uh, and they seem to give sort of two, two uh, feelings to Christmas. So very, you know, the Holly and the Ivy is sort of this sort of very medieval, merry England, uh, holly, jolly Christmas feel. Um, where we're all jumping for joy because of the birth of the Christ child. And then this is somewhat much more melancholy. Now, we we imagine the the snow falling uh, silently on on the the first Christmas Eve, um, and everything's quiet, and it's time to be hushed and reverent. So we have these two views of Christmas, if you like, made manifest in these two Christmas carols. So this is why this is certainly one of the two uh, of my favorite Christmas carols. All right, we'll take it away with A Christmas Carol, Joseph Pierce. Okay, A Christmas Carol by Christina Rossetti. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow. In the bleak midwinter, long ago. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed. The Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Enough for him whom cherubim worship night and day, a breastful of milk and a mangerful of hay. Enough for him whom angels fall down before, the ox and ass and camel which adore. Angels and archangels may have gathered there, cherubim and seraphim thronged the air, but only his mother in her maiden bliss worshipped the beloved with a kiss. What can I give him, poor as I am, If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what I can, I give him. Give my heart. I can totally see why this is one of your favorite Christmas carols, uh, Joseph. Um, A couple of things that that I would love to, to discuss right now. First of all, just how she brings out in this poem the humility of God in coming to earth. Yes, exactly. That, that, that God doesn't come, I mean, he will at the end of time, come in triumph, but he, he basically comes as one of us. And he, as one of us, uh, as, a, as a human person, as a man, he shows us who we are. And, and the only way that we really have a right to have any uh, response to the beauty of God and his creation is with humility and to recognize our poverty, as the poet herself does at the end. And what, what can I give, poor as I am? I have nothing to give except my heart. No, we, we, we have nothing to give God. God has everything to give us. But in becoming man, he gives up so much to become one of us. Yeah, I mean, give him my heart. It seems so little, and yet our God, heaven cannot hold him nor earth sustain, yet a, a stable place sufficed, yet enough for him was a breast full of milk. You know, enough for him was was a kiss from his mother. So 
that's what the Lord wants from him. That's all he wants is my heart. Exactly. And basically, if, if we strip, strip away all the niceties of life, all the ephemera, all the material wealth and so-called prosperity, what's really valuable is love. It's the love between human persons, the love between God and man, the love between God, the, uh, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and man, and the love between man and man, love, love between our, our, us and our neighbors. Um, this, this is ultimately we strip everything down to, 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 to the bare necessities that we see in, 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 uh, in Bethlehem on uh, Christmas morning, and that's all that's left, and it's all that matters. So great was his love for us that he sent his only son. Uh, amen. We've been talking to Joseph Pierce. You can find Joseph linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Thank you so much for sharing this beautiful poem with us today, Joseph. My pleasure is always, Anna. God bless you. You're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 21 past the hour. We know you love waking up to the Sunrise Morning Show with a hot cup of Mystic Monk coffee. And if you're looking for decaf options to have something to warm you up at the end of the day, the Mystic Monks have the coffee and tea for you. And you can earn us a commission that supports the show when you shop after clicking the Mystic Monk link at our site, sunrisemorningshow.com. Be sure to also check out our online store where you can purchase Sunrise Morning Show ceramic and travel mugs. Find our swag and link through to Mystic Monk Coffee at sonrisemorningshow.com. This is Father Stephen Alcott from St. Gertrude Parish in Madeira. I'd like to share with you a prayer written by St. Ephraim the Syrian. This is a prayer to Mary on the occasion of the birth of Jesus Christ. Blessed be that child who gladdened Bethlehem today. Blessed be the babe who made manhood young again. Glory to the silence who spoke by his voice. Glory to that hidden one whose son was made manifest. Glory to that great one whose son descended and was small. By power from him, Mary was able to bear in her embrace him that bears up all things. From the great storehouse of all creatures, Mary gave him all. She gave him milk from himself that prepared it. She gave him food from himself that made it. Her hands bore him in that he had lightened his strength. She wove for him and clothed him because he had put off his glory. How mighty art thou, O child! Thy judgment is mighty and thy love is sweet. Thy father is in heaven, thy mother on earth. Who shall declare thee? If a man should seek after thy nature, it is hidden in the mighty bosom of the Godhead. If a man seek after thy visible body, it is laid in the little bosom of Mary. For Sacred Heart Radio, this is Father Stephen Alcott. Joining us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Dr. Michael Barber. He's a professor with the Augustan Institute's Graduate School of Theology and author of the book, The True Meaning of Christmas, The Birth of Jesus and the Origins of the Season. Dr. Barber, welcome back. Thanks for having me on, Annie. Absolutely. And we're going to talk today about the setting of the nativity. That is a manger in a, well, is it a stable or a cave or something else? We'll get to that in the town of Bethlehem. So I want to start by reading Luke chapter two. This is uh, verses one through seven. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. 
This was the first enrollment when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be enrolled each to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be enrolled with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to be delivered. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, Dr. Barber, as we talk about the significance of the place where Jesus would be born, uh, I want to start bigger and then move down to the more particular. So we'll start with Bethlehem itself. Why is it fitting that the Son of God, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem? Okay, well, first of all, Bethlehem is not a major power center in Jesus' day, right? So why is Bethlehem so important? It's because of its past. Bethlehem is an important place in the Bible because it was the home of Israel's greatest king, King David, who was the model for Jewish hopes for the future. They hoped for a coming Messiah who would be a new David. Now, Bethlehem is kind of positioned, interestingly, in the Gospel story, because what we see is that Jesus is born during the reign of all these important political figures. And so we have a reference of Caesar and how he's telling everybody they've got to go to their hometown to be enrolled. And so it looks like, you know, Caesar is calling the shots. But what we see here is that, in fact, Caesar doesn't realize it, but in reality, mm-hmm. he has inadvertently caused prophecy to be realized. In the book of Micah, there is an oracle that explains that the Messiah, or at least there's a passage that describes how a ruler will come from Bethlehem, and it was understood in Jesus' day that this was about the Messiah by many Jews, okay? And so Caesar may be king of the world, but here's the thing. God is going to do what Mary explains earlier in the Gospel of Luke in her Magnificat. She talks about how God will bring down the mighty from their thrones and raise up the lowly. Mm -hmm. And so Bethlehem, the sleepy little town, is going to be the place where the true king of the world is born. Now the question is, where within Bethlehem was he born? So with that, what is problematic, if you will, with the translation of that last line that I read in Luke chapter 2? It says, because there was no place for them in the inn. Right. So here's the interesting thing about that translation. The story often gets reimagined in film and in, you know, various productions, adaptations, stage adaptations, whatever, is that what happened was Jesus is born uh, the night Mary and Joseph arrive in Bethlehem. Mary is going into labor, and they're trying to find a place, you know, for Jesus to be born. And they go to these inns, and they can't find accommodations. You know, it's like there's a no-vacancy sign in Hotel Bethlehem. You know, and, but, that, but that doesn't really get at what's going on here. So the word that's translated in, in Greek, is kakaluma. Now, in is actually a bad translation there. The, the, the Greek word for in, in the Gospel of Luke, is pandokia, and we actually see it later in the story of the Good Samaritan. But in Luke chapter 2, when it says they laid him in the manger because there's no room in the inn, the Greek word there is not 
in, technically, but actually, Kapaluma is the word for room. Now, I'm not just saying this because I want to, like, be a mythbuster or something like that. But, you know, people say, well, you're just being a historical critic or something like that. And no, actually, truth matters. And if you miss that, that what's going on in the story, you actually will will miss out on something that's really powerful for your faith. Because here's the thing, that word that's translated in actually should be room. So I like to translate it, there was no space in the room. And that's why he's laid in the manger. And that word room, kataluma, shows up again later in Luke's gospel in a key place, in the story of the Last Supper. Where does Jesus have the disciples prepare his Last Supper? They have to go to a, and they go into the city, and they end up finding a room, a kataluma. Mm-hmm. And it's in the upper room that Jesus then takes the bread, and he gives it to the disciples, and he says, take and eat this. You see, the church fathers saw this as all wrapped up together. So Jesus is laid in a manger. The Greek word there is fotne, as Raymond Brown and other scholars show. That word most likely means something like a feeding trough, Right. So Jesus is put where the feed goes for the animals. Jesus goes where the food goes, right? And why does he go there? He's in the manger because he can't be in the room yet, right? They laid him in the manger because there's no room, there's no space in the room, in the Kataluma. Later, when he's in the room, he reveals the truth that the Christmas story is pointing to, that he has come as the bread of life. And so church fathers like Jerome recognize that this seems to be related to the name of the city Jesus is born in. Let's go back to Bethlehem. Bethlehem literally means Beth, house, Lehem, bread. Bethlehem means house of bread. And so fathers of the church, doctors of the church, like the great biblical scholar Jerome, says that Jesus is born in Bethlehem because he comes to us as the bread of life. And so every time We celebrate the Mass. What are we doing? We're going back to the manger. To the manger, and the manger is pointing us forward to what happens in the Eucharistic celebration of the Church. And so when we celebrate the Mass on Sunday, guess what we do? We sing glory to God in the highest. Mm. Gloria in excelsis Deo. That is the song of the angels on Christmas night. When heaven touches down to earth in Bethlehem on the night of the Nativity, the angels sing glory to God in the highest. And when heaven touches down to earth in the mass, we sing glory to God in the highest, because the mystery that takes place at Christmas is made present for us in the mass. I mean, it just gives you chills to think about it and how the Lord brought all of this about. But I want to close our conversation with kind of a more practical, you know, going back to our, our vision of, of what the nativity scene looks like and the crash and, and whatnot. Okay, so was he born in a stable or was he born in a cave or what? And were there animals actually present, Dr. Barber? Okay, well, let's be clear. The Gospel of Luke doesn't tell us exactly who was at the scene of Jesus' birth, other than to tell us that shepherds end up coming. And then at a later time, we know the Magi come, but probably not on the same night as Jesus' birth, a little bit later, right? Or sometime later. And so the ox and the donkey are often depicted as being present at Jesus' birth because of uh, a 
passage in the book of Isaiah, especially in the Greek version of Isaiah, is a passage that talks about the, uh, the ox and the donkey. And so the Holy Church Fathers, Francis of Assisi, who started the tradition of setting up a manger scene, uh, used that passage and recognized that passage as pointing forward to the birth of Jesus. Isaiah 1-3, the ox knows its owner and the donkey knows the manger of its Lord, but Israel has not known me. Again, people like Jerome see that as fulfilled in Jesus' birth. So the point of having the ox and the donkey there is to show us that Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures. Now, there is an ancient tradition that Jesus was born in a cave. We see that attested in Justin Martyr's writing and in an early Christian story. It is not necessarily historical, but a reimagining of Jesus' birth called the Proto-Evangelium of James. We see already somewhere between 150 and 200, it's clear that people understood that Jesus was born in a cave. Now, we actually know that, um, that inhabitants of the Holy Land, especially Bethlehem, would tell visitors, this is the cave that Jesus was born in. And, and so there's a church that's built on that site, to this day, if you go there, as you know, many people have, I've been there, you go to this place, you'll see that there are these caves underneath where the, where, the, where the church was built. And in fact, we know that in the first century, um, people often made their homes out of caves. So it's not entirely implausible. There's an a, a archaeologist and a scholar named Jordan Ryan who wrote a book where he looks at some of the archaeological evidence to support this idea that Jesus may have been born in a cave. And the early church fathers saw huge significance to this. They, they believed that the cave of Jesus' birth would point forward to the cave of Jesus' burial. So just as he's wrapped up and laid in a manger in a cave, so too he's wrapped in his death and laid in a cave before he's risen from the dead. Wow. So uh, there's a lot of theological significance to that. Now, we don't know for sure. Uh, I, I, you know, nobody had a, a camcorder. This is not an article of faith. It's not been defined by the Catholic Church. But this is something that Catholics are to believe uh, by, you know, uh, uh, you know, by the ascent of faith or something like that. But nonetheless, it's a very beautiful tradition, and you can go to this day to that site. The, some of the earliest Christians believe was the site of Jesus' birth. It's a very powerful place. Encourage anyone to take that, that pilgrimage there and see yeah. it for themselves. Very cool. We've been talking to Dr. Michael Barber. The book is called The True Meaning of Christmas The Birth of Jesus and the Origins of the Season. Go to Catholic.market to pick up a copy. Dr. Barber, thank you so much. Oh, thanks so much, Annie. Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening to the Best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell. It's 35 minutes past the hour. Business owners are starting to think outside the box to find new customers. You can reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners by underwriting The Sunrise Morning Show. Each weekday morning, listeners across the U.S. and around the globe can hear your message for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on The Sunrise Morning Show. To find out how it works, email me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Hello, this is Deacon Bill Mullaney from Immaculate Heart of Mary Parish, inviting you to take a moment to reflect on words from the Catechism of the Catholic Church about Mary, 
the mother of Jesus. In paragraph number 490 of the Catechism, we read the following. To become the mother of the Savior, Mary was enriched by God with gifts appropriate to such a role. The angel Gabriel, at the moment of the Annunciation, salutes her as full of grace. The opening words of one of the church's favorite prayers, the Hail Mary, provides us a lesson for life. The prayer tells of Mary being filled with God's graces, and thus he is with her. We know that God is with us all, at all times. But we sometimes lose sight of that fact. We especially don't think of God as being with us when we allow ourselves to stray away from him through sin. Another part of this prayer asks Mary, the mother of God, to pray for us sinners. Through her prayerful intercession, may God enrich our lives with his grace that we might be more like Mary. For Sacred Heart Radio, this is Deacon Bill Mullaney. talking about the nativity today with Steve Ray, a man who is quite familiar with the places involved in the nativity story. Steve online at catholicconvert.com. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Annie. Nice to talk with you this morning. It's nice to talk to you. Now, let's start with uh, just looking at the, the accounts of the nativity based in the Gospels. They're a little bit different aren't they? Yes, they are, because when you have um, two different people explaining a situation uh, from their own perspective, you get two different stories, although they don't contradict. They are just two different angles. For example, if there's an accident in the main intersection and you see one person watches it from the 17th floor of the Hilton Hotel on the corner, one person's in the car in the accident, another person's standing over on the street corner, you may see it different ways. You have a different perspective. And this is kind of what it's like, because Matthew and Luke are the ones that tell the story of Jesus' nativity. John and Mark don't, and there's a reason why. But Matthew tells the story from Joseph's perspective, and Luke tells the story of the birth of Jesus from Mary's perspective. Mm. And each one does it in a different way. Each story tells about the genealogy or the, or the origins of Jesus from a different perspective. For example, Matthew is presenting Jesus to the Jews as the king. Mark is presenting him to the Romans as a servant, as the one who is, a, it's all about he did this, he served there, he came to serve. And so the king, you always know his genealogy, that's very important, but who cares about the genealogy of a servant? So you have these two opposites, king and servant, and one has a great genealogy from Joseph's perspective, and who is the son of David, and the other has no genealogy because it's about a servant. servant. But then you also have two other opposites, and John you have Jesus presented as being God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what's the genealogy there? Exactly that. He was with God from all of the beginning, and then he became flesh in verse 14. And then in 
the, and then in the opposite one is Luke. He's presenting Jesus as the ideal man, as the one who's who's the one who has fulfilled what man uh, humanity really should be, the one who comes down, the ideal man. And there you have another genealogy that takes you all the way back to Adam and Eve, showing that Jesus really came and is really humanity all the way from Adam and Eve. So you have these different perspectives, but Matthew tells the story of Jesus's birth from Joseph's perspective, and the angels come to speak to Joseph in that story, doesn't they? You don't say anything about angels coming to speak to Mary. There are only angels coming to speak to Joseph. And then in Luke, you have the story from Mary's perspective, and you have the angel coming to speak to Mary. Very interesting. Okay, so tell us about the, the various levels of history with Bethlehem. This is really fun to do when we leave our hotel in Jerusalem with a group. But imagine that um, it goes back 4,000 years. There's Abraham, then Isaac, and then Jacob. And Jacob is traveling from the north, and he's going south through Jerusalem and down through Bethlehem to go to Hebron. And as he passes through Bethlehem, his wife, Rachel, is very pregnant and she gives birth on the way. They were tough back in those days. She got off her camel, got down, had the baby, <laughs> and she died. And you just had a baby, so I, can, yeah. I know you're thinking, oh, my goodness, that's yeah, not the way I would want to do this. That's not the way I would want to do it. <laughs> and, uh, so, but, and she died. Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin in Bethlehem. They buried her on the side of the road at the entrance into Bethlehem, and then he continued on his journey. Now, that's the first step. You find that she's buried there. By the way, her tomb is still there today. You can still go to Rachel's tomb uh, 4,000 years later. I have it in my movie, David and Solomon. And then you have the, um, and, and you know, that's an interesting point, too, that she's buried there on the side of the road. She was nine months pregnant and gave birth as she's entering Bethlehem. Don't think that Joseph, when he's coming down the same road, today it's called the Hebron Road, it's still the same because it goes between Jerusalem and Hebron. Don't think Joseph, when he's got Mary and she's nine months pregnant and they walk into Bethlehem and he looks over to his right and there is the tomb of his matriarch. Mm -hmm. He's thinking, oh dear God, don't let that happen to us. And then he can't even find a place for Mary to have the baby. Just imagine you walk by and you remember that, she, that Rachel died right here at nine months pregnant. And then you have the next story, that's of Ruth. Many people know about Ruth. She was the, um, well, she was the Moabite. She was from the other side of the Jordan Valley from a, a pagan uh, peoples, but she came back with her, her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she, that was the fields of Bethlehem. So that's where Ruth lived. In fact, there are places that are called the Field of Bethlehem Restaurant and so on because they name it after her. Well, then she marries Boaz, and they have Obed. Obed has Jesse, and Jesse has... David, David. Yeah. and that's why it's called the city of David in the Gospel of Luke. And so David is born there in Bethlehem as well, and not knowing himself that there was someday going to become a great king who was going to be called the son of David, who would be the Messiah and the king of all the universe and save the people from their sins. But David, there was a shepherd boy outside and around in Bethlehem, and that's where he wrote the 23rd Psalm. I'm convinced of it, for the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and so on, these beautiful psalms, I think, were written, many of them, right from the, the countryside of Jerusalem. And then we come to Malachi chapter, I'm, I'm sorry, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and we find the verse that says, O little town of Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. Somebody didn't just write that hymn. That came right out of the prophet Micah. 
because he said, in the little town of Bethlehem will come for you, or even though you're such a small little village in the, in the area of Judah, but yet from you will come the great king, the savior. So then that happens. And then 400 years later, Mary and Joseph are going down the road. They get called to Bethlehem for a census, and the and Rome didn't realize that they were just helping to fulfill a prophecy when they said, you have to go to the town of your fathers. So Joseph has to travel there. They didn't realize that that was being done so that the prophecy could be fulfilled, that even though Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth, they had to travel 100 miles, and they didn't have air-conditioned buses like we did. They had to walk eight for over a hundred miles to get to Bethlehem so that the prophecy of, of Micah would be fulfilled that the baby would be born in Bethlehem and they arrive there and there's no place in the inn for them they have to stay in a stable and we know that because it says Mary placed the baby in a manger now here's an interesting thing why another interesting little comment is why does Mary have to go to Bethlehem to give birth to the baby well who is in her womb he is the bread of life the name Bethlehem is two words, Bet-Lachem. It means house of bread. Mm-hmm. Mary has the bread of life in her womb. She's going to the house of bread to deliver the bread. And wow. where does she put Mary at the first moment? Where does Mary put? I bet you you didn't put your baby in a manger, a food trough for animals. No, nope, they didn't I, have that at the hospital. Got to say. didn't have that where you were. <laughs> uh, we didn't when we had our four kids either. But the interesting thing is I think Mary put the baby in a manger, which is a food dish, because she was telling us from the very moment of his beginning of his life that he was going to become our food. Mm-hmm. All these things fit together so well when you meditate on Scripture, when you pray over it and think about it and learn the meaning of names and words. So Mary puts him in a food dish. And by the way, Annie, I like to ask people this, too, when we're there. Why were the shepherds the first ones to be known about uh, to know about the birth of Jesus? It was it wasn't to the king, it wasn't to nobility, it was to the lowly shepherds. Why were they the first to know about the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem? Because shepherds are always the first to know about the birth of a lamb. Jesus hmm. is the lamb of God. Of course they would know it first. Wow. If uh, listeners want to check out more of your resources on the nativity and all kinds of other things, where can they go? They go to my website, CatholicConvert.com, Catholic Convert. And if you go to my past pilgrimages, you can see whole videos of walking through Bethlehem and see all the stuff for yourself in our videos. We'll have that linked at SunriseMorningShow.com. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you. God bless. Hey, and Merry Christmas. Thank you. Stay tuned for more of the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. Looking for peace? Longing for joy? God is calling you to know and love Jesus Christ like never before and to help others do the same. God is calling you to bring Ignatian prayer into the suffering world, to work for the new evangelization. Here's your opportunity. Go to lordteachmetopray.com, order the free digital training and facilitator manual, lordteachmetopray.com. Click on the red button now. God is calling you. Underwritten by Lord Teach Me to Pray. Central Fabricators is proud to support the Sunrise Morning Show, where you'll get news from the Catholic perspective, while keeping you up to date on what's happening in the Vatican as well. It's also a great way to keep in touch with the Catholic faith throughout the week. Central Fabricators, based in Cincinnati, Ohio, is a family-owned business for over 75 years, manufacturing and repairing corrosion-resistant storage tanks, reactors, and pressure vessels. On the web at centralfabricators.com, 
That's centralfabricators.com. Cold mornings get a little better when you've got a good cup of hot coffee or tea to help warm you up and perk you up. And look no further than Mystic Monk Coffee for some delicious flavors made by real monks. And when you click the Mystic Monk link at sunrisemorningshow.com, you support both the monks and the show because we get a commission every time you click that link and buy their products. You can also purchase Sunrise Morning Show mugs and travel mugs, both $10 in our online store. You can purchase those mugs and link to Mystic Monk Coffee at sunrisemorningshow.com. When I was outside of the church, there was always an unsettled feeling. There was always a feeling of something missing and something not complete. The, the deal clincher is we found our way to our, our parish and we met just an incredible pastor. We learned things that we'd never been taught. Wouldn't be the person that I am without the church and without the sacraments, particularly the Eucharist. I can't live without it. If you've been away from the Catholic Church, visit catholicscomehome.org. Joining us now on the Sunrise Morning Show here in studio, Father Steph Van Kemper, pastor of St. Catherine in Fort Thomas, president of the Board of Sacred Heart Catholic Radio. Good morning, morning. Father. Good morning. It's good to have you. And just to start off our conversation, to sort of lay the groundwork for what we're going to be doing here today, uh, can you tell us about the tradition known as the burning of the greens? Sure. It's a, it's a, it comes from, the Ger- from Germany. It's a German tradition. And... Uh, it's linked to the presentation where we celebrate um, the light uh, that's come into the world, the light for the Gentiles. And uh, uh, basically you burn your greens. You burn your um, uh, Christmas trees, wreaths, whatever greens you have up. Yeah, and of course the Feast of the Presentation, 40 days after Christmas, and traditionally speaking, Christmas was a 40-day season. It was originally. And so you do this at St. Catherine's, this burning of the greens. Can you tell us how many Christmas trees have you gathered already at this point? Well, it started small. When I first started, it was just the trees we had in the church. Yeah. And uh, then parishioners uh, started bringing some of theirs. And, and, uh, and uh, you know how men are. If 20, burning 20 trees is good, <laughs> burning 60 has to be better. <laughs> Of course. And so they started trolling the uh, uh, city for <laughs> trees. And then it got to the point where the city itself was calling us and saying, hey, do you, <laughs> you want us to drop our trees off? So. so I know that, I mean, this is so hard to take, isn't it? When when you look at, I, you, we were talking on the phone mm. over the weekend about, goodness gracious, like two days after Christmas, yeah. People were throwing out their Christmas trees. I mean, can you speak to to the importance for us as Catholics to celebrate Christmas as a season instead of as a day? Well, in, in some ways for a lot of people, Christmas Day seems to be the end of the Christmas season mm-hmm. and not the beginning. But if you celebrate Advent, you know, the church gives us this beautiful uh, season of Advent. If you celebrate that... Then, you know, Christmas Eve, you might say, then we start our celebration of Christmas. And, um, um, it's, you know, and it's not that I'm wagging my finger at anybody, but it's, uh, I, I get a little sad because there are a lot of riches in the Christmas season mm-hmm. that get missed if you don't celebrate it. And there are a lot of riches in the Advent season that get missed if you're already going to, right to Christmas. 
Well, speaking of the the riches that we have, even in just those first 12 days of Christmas, I know you've written a little song <laughs> that you would like to share with everyone, and I'd love for you to sing it. I know you have a, a singing background, <laughs> as many of our, our listeners would know. Would you be willing to uh, sing this song for us? Absolutely. So I was thinking about I was I was thinking about all these people who have uh, stopped celebrating, you know, and I and I was driving along uh, early one morning, and I thought, you know, I was asking the Lord, Lord, what can I do to entice people or encourage them or or you know coax them into celebrating this? And uh, the uh, tune, the Twelve Days of Christmas, came to my mind, and then the first. I thought, okay, St. Stephen is the first celebration after Christmas, and then the next day is St. John, the Apostle Jesus loved, and, and then Holy Innocence. And I started thinking about these, and uh, this song came to me. Yeah. On the first day of Christmas, the Christ child gave to me Martyr Stephen to pray for me. On the second day of Christmas, the Christ child gave to me the apostle whom he loved, and martyr Stephen to pray for me. On the third day of Christmas, the Christ child gave to me, innocent children martyrs, the apostle whom he loved, and martyr Stephen to pray for me. On the fourth day of Christmas, the Christ child gave to me, Bishop Thomas Beckett, innocent children martyrs, the apostle whom he loved, and martyr Stephen to pray for me. On the fifth day of Christmas, the Christ child gave to me the Holy Family. Bishop Thomas Beckett, holy innocence, the apostle whom he loved, and martyr Stephen to pray for me. On the sixth day of Christmas, the Christ child gave to me the first pope named Sylvester, the Holy Family. Bishop Thomas Beckett, Holy Innocence, the apostle whom he loved, and martyr Stephen to pray for me. On the seventh day of Christmas, the Christ child gave to me Mary, Mother of God, the first pope named Sylvester, the Holy Family. Bishop Thomas Beckett, Holy Innocence, the apostle whom he loved, and martyr Stephen to pray for me. On the eighth day of Christmas, the Christ child gave to me Gregory and Basil, Mary, Mother of God, the first pope named Sylvester, the Holy Family. Bishop Thomas Beckett, Holy Innocence, the Apostle whom he loved, and Martyr Stephen to pray for me. On the ninth day of Christmas, the Christ child gave to me Genevieve the Virgin, Gregory and Basil, Mary, Mother of God, the first Pope named Sylvester, the Holy Family. Bishop Thomas Beckett, Holy Innocence, the Apostle whom he loved, and Martyr Stephen to pray for me. On the tenth day of Christmas, the Christ child gave to me 
Elizabeth, Anne, Seton, Genevieve, the Virgin, Gregory, and Basil, Mary, Mother of God, the first pope named Sylvester, the Holy Family, Bishop Thomas Becket, Holy Innocence, the Apostle whom he loved, and Martyr Stephen to pray for me. On the eleventh day of Christmas, the Christ child gave to me Bishop John Neumann, Elizabeth Ann Seaton, Genevieve the Virgin, Gregory and Basil, Mary, Mother of God, the first Pope named Sylvester, the Holy Family, Bishop Thomas Becket, Holy Innocence, the Apostle whom he loved, and Martyr Stephen to pray for me. On the twelfth day of Christmas, the Christ child gave to me Magi from the East, Bishop John Neumann, Elizabeth Ann Seaton, Genevieve the Virgin, Gregory and Basil, Mary, Mother of God, the first Pope named Sylvester, the Holy Family, Bishop Thomas Becket, Holy Innocence, the Apostle whom he loved, and martyr Stephen to pray for me. Father, that was just beautiful. Thank you so much. Just really hits home what we have to be grateful for from the Lord and why we should be celebrating Christmas as a season. Father Steph Van Kemper, thank you so much and Merry Christmas. That'll do it for this special Christmas edition of the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the previous hour. For Matt Swaim and Paul Lockman, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace. Let's begin this special hour of the Sunrise Morning Show in prayer together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. O Jesus, the Magi offered you revealing gifts, gold because you are our King, frankincense because you are our God, and myrrh because you are our Redeemer. Like the Magi, I offer you my gifts, the gold of my earnest love as your faithful subject, the frankincense of frequent prayer as your creature, and the myrrh of a generous self-sacrifice as a sinner. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning and welcome to this special Best of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell and alongside Matt Swaim, we're heading to the archives today to share with you some of our favorite interviews of the past. And coming up this hour, we'll talk to Dale Alquist of the American Chesterton Society about G.K. Chesterton and his thoughts on Santa Claus. Mark Doust of Catholic Singles will discuss the cross of being single during the holiday season. Steve Ray will tell us about the life of St. John, whose feast day we celebrate on December 27th. 
Gary Zimak will reflect on the word becoming flesh and how that can help us ease anxiety. Plus, Dr. Marcellino D'Ambrosio on the childhood of Jesus. So we hope you can stick around for the entire hour ahead. We'll get started right now at two minutes past the hour. Matt? Dale Alquist now joins us from the American Chesterton Society to talk about G.K. Chesterton and Santa. Dale, good morning. Good morning, Matt. God bless you. Do you think that part of the reason Chesterton had so many positive things to say about Santa Claus is because deep down he kind of wished he was Santa Claus? Or already looked like him? Is that what we're talking about here? <laughs> Could be. Yeah, well, you know, he did, uh, he actually did dress up as Santa Claus or as Father Christmas uh, uh, many times for the uh, for the Christmas seasons in, uh, in England during the early 20th century. So it was a natural connection. Well, I was walking down the street from the grocery store the other day, and at one of those wireless phone places, there was a guy in a Santa suit, and I know that it was actually Chuck D., the Red Superfan who appears on the Jumbotron at Cincinnati Reds games, and not actually Santa Claus himself. And the kids can be confused looking around as they get older and say, well, there's a mall Santa here and a mall Santa there. What's going on here? And the older they get, they might stop believing in Santa. But the older that Chesterton got, the more he claimed he did believe in Santa. Absolutely. There's a reason for these great traditions, and uh, there's a reason we play dress-up. All these things are are, uh, not without significance. Chesterton always found the the proper meaning in these things, and uh, he always uh, got a kick out of people who became cynical and uh, and stopped believing in in these good things. Chesterton said it was the, the child who didn't believe in Santa Claus who had insomnia. Whereas the one who did believe in Santa Claus slept peacefully through the night. <laughs> but but the, there's a reason, of course. Um, you know, the, the secular world has a hard time because they, their problem is they're always forgetting the Christian connections with, with Christmas. And Cheston always rightly points out that all these things are tied to our, our Christian beliefs. Santa Claus is St. Nicholas. That's where he comes from. He, he's a Christian saint. He's the patron saint of children. He has this love for children, and of course, he's very present around around Christmas. Uh, you know, Saint Nicholas Day is is celebrated in December, and, and the whole the whole month belongs to him. <laughs> he's just one of the great saints. He's one of the great saints. Um, you know the story about Saint Nicholas at the. Uh, uh, Council of Nicaea. Oh, of, of don't course, you? of course, everybody knows that one about uh, how you don't want to be proclaiming heresy in front of Saint Nick unless you know how to duck. <laughs> That's exactly right. He was the one who took on the Arian heresy by taking on Arius himself. And uh, but but these traditions that have arisen over the year, Chesterton attaches meaning to each of them, like the fact that that our man in red comes down the chimney. Chester says the, the chimney itself is a very significant symbol because it's this passage between earth and heaven, and there's very it's very symbolic that heaven you know heaven visits earth at uh, at Christmas, and uh, and and there's also this connection between heaven and the home because the the home is the other sacred place uh, besides the church and the altar. The home is the sacred place of the family, and uh, you know we're we're blessed to be visited by a, a Christian saint during. Uh, during Christmas. <laughs> well, and that appreciation and wonder and gratitude that was a part of Chesterton's whole outlook. You know, we have wonder and appreciation and gratitude when we wake up on Christmas morning, but you get the sense that Chesterton had that kind of wonder and appreciation and gratitude every morning when he woke up, and that's why he was so drawn to St. Nicholas. Yes, he's got that great line about, of course, the children are happy when they see that their stockings are filled with gifts and treats from Santa Claus, but he says, 
why can't I be thankful that my stockings are filled with the miraculous gift of my own two legs? Yeah. Yeah, one of my favorites. I believe that's from Orthodoxy, right? Well, close. Yes, close. it is. It's completely from Orthodoxy. <laughs> <laughs> well, can't get much closer than that. Yeah, it's a book everyone should read, Matt. It, they should. And Santa Claus, uh, again, is one of those uh, figures that p- appeals so much to children. And I imagine that because Chesterton had such a childlike personality, there was that appeal as well. Absolutely. You know, uh, Chesterton sort of epitomizes the... Uh, the verse where, where Jesus says, unless you become like a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven, because we can only uh, enter the kingdom of heaven with a sense of wonder and joy and, and gratitude, and, and Chesterton certainly lives that out, bears that out in his entire being. And his love for children uh, was, was, is played out, too. This is, this is a man who, uh, he and his wife had hoped to have a large family, and uh, she had a physical problem where she couldn't have children, so they always filled their house with other people's children. They had many, many adults not allowed parties at their uh, at their house that they hosted. <laughs> you know, I think I ought to throw a few of those. Yeah. That might not be a terrible idea. Well, if our listeners want to get some resources from the American Chesterton Society in regard to Christmas and Chesterton, do you have anything for us? Well, they should contact us at chesterton.org and we can uh, shower them with gifts of Chesterton quotations. Christmas is such an important day to Chesterton, so uh, it's a natural. Chesterton.org. And you can get the big Christmas tree ornament that we yes. sell of Chesterton. Which <laughs> hangs proudly and bows my branches low at the Swaim household. 300-pound Christmas ornament. <laughs> Dale, always great catching up with you. Have a blessed day. God bless, Matt. I'm Matt Swaim, and you're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. Back after this. Support is from Solidarity HealthShare. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things that violate your beliefs? Have you ever felt there has to be a better way, but didn't know you had any options? If you answered yes, I've got some good news for you. There is a better way and a more affordable way. Solidarity HealthShare can save you hundreds of dollars each month while actually supporting your beliefs. Because the best news is that Solidarity HealthShare costs a whole lot less than insurance. It's time to jump in and put your money where your faith is. And put some money back into your wallet at the same time. Join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based healthcare sharing community. Prices start as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-334-3245. That's 844-334-3245. Solidarity Health Share, 844-334-3245. It's that time of year when you need hot drinks throughout the day and night, so look no further than the Mystic Monks, who sell coffee and tea, regular and decaf. And you can support our work by earning us a commission on your purchase. Just go first to sunrisemorningshow.com and click the Mystic Monk link at the side of the page. While you're at our site, be sure to check out our online store where you can purchase Sunrise Morning Show ceramic and travel mugs. Again, find our online store and link to Mystic Monk Coffee through sonrisemorningshow.com. The most original and exclusive Catholic content is on EWTN Radio. You know, we talk story with each of our very unique guests for the whole hour so that you can go deep with us as you yourself pursue your own story of heroic virtue and as you pursue intimacy with God. The Bear Wozniak Adventure. 
Saturday night, 6 Eastern on EWTN Radio. Mark Doust is joining us again. He's with CatholicSingles.com. Good morning, Mark. Good morning and Merry Christmas. Hey, thank you. And the Christmas season and New Year's can be a difficult time of year for someone who is single. And this may seem like kind of a silly question, but what are some of the reasons for that? Well, I think there's two reasons. One, I think uh, singles, people who are single this time of year, just kind of uh, harkens to the the, uh, idea that People want to spend this with other people. They want to spend it with a loved one. That would be number one. And then number two, seeing family that maybe you haven't seen in a long time, the question inevitably comes up mm-hmm. of, uh, are you seeing anyone? Or, uh, oh, you're still single. Somebody making a good-natured comment or what they think is a good-natured comment, which is actually probably kind of painful for, for somebody who's questioning themselves uh, why they don't have anyone this year. Certainly. Is this something that you hear about within the CatholicSingles.com community? Absolutely. You know, I saw a poll. We, this was not our poll, but I saw a poll recently talking about the most difficult times of year for singles. 40% said Christmas, 35% said New Year's. That's 75% of people saying uh, that this time of year is the most painful time of year, year for them because they're constantly reminded uh, of their singleness and, and the fact that they want to be with somebody, but the, just from just circumstances, this is where they are. Well, certainly there's, of course, mistletoe at Christmas time, and then there's midnight at New Year's. Exactly. No one to kiss. Now, does it have to be that way, though? Like, do you have uh, to, do you have to have, does this have to be a depressing time for somebody that doesn't have someone to kiss under the mistletoe or at New Year's? No, it, it doesn't have to be a depressing time. In fact, uh, one of our, our writers on our blog wrote a beautiful piece a few uh, a few months ago called Unchosen Singleness suffering and redemption, and she talks uh, quite a bit about how to embrace the cross that is this unchosen singleness, being single without necessarily making that a life choice. And uh, she brings up that that famous quote from Mother Teresa, where Mother Teresa's talking to uh, a woman who's suffering and saying, your sufferings are the kisses of Jesus, and the woman responds saying, Mother, can you please ask Jesus to stop kissing me so much? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, she talks in this this, uh, blog post about uh, how to transform this cross into a loving relationship with Christ. Uh, and it's just, it's a beautiful uh, piece. Uh, I would recommend people, you know, take a look at it, anyone that is feeling uh, suffering at this time. But it's a time to embrace, and there's there's family, and there's still friends to be able to embrace during this time. Uh, and I, I think singles need to understand that there's a special role within the life of the Church uh, for them um, in their, their state of being single right now. Yeah, what advice do you have for somebody to sort of, I, I think that this takes some preparation mentally and especially spiritually to to kind of get yourself geared up for this holiday season. Do you agree? I I do. I I really do think uh, you're right on that. I think the first thing that people need to do is face this head on, right? The, the, The fact is, being single isn't because you're not good enough. And this is what people often think. They think, what's wrong with me? Why am I still single? But I think if, if we change that around and understand that this is a special call from God for some reason or another, and to understand that God is calling you to something deeper, start there, start there, and understand that this time of year in the suffering, embracing that suffering has a special role within the Church. Um, so reject the lie that, that you're not uh, enough. Reject the lie that there's something wrong with you. And two, when those inevitable conversations come up at, at holidays, 
don't just laugh them off. Feel free to share your, your suffering or your frustration. Uh, and, and you never know who else is suffering in some way. Uh, you can provide comfort to somebody else, or they can provide comfort to you as well. So I would just encourage people to not be, be uh, scared about this or, or be timid about uh, your, your, your singleness. Uh, embrace it for what it is right now with the hope, uh, always with the hope that God is going to bring somebody in your life. Well, it's also so easy to fall not just into jealousy if you have friends that are, you know, this is a big engagement season, for instance. You know, not just falling into jealousy, but falling into envy, of course, sorrow at another person's good, where you have that initial pang before you kind of feign your your happiness for them. Or maybe you are genuinely happy, but you still have that pang at the beginning there. What are your thoughts on how to avoid that? Yeah, that's a really good point. We, we had another blog post written recently called The Devil is a Life Coach. And the, the writer who wrote this was talking about dealing with that, that initial pang and making sure that it doesn't cause you to give in to the temptation of being married for married, being married's sake, mm-hmm. right? And, and making sure that that doesn't push you in the wrong direction. There are people out there who have... Uh, gotten married, and it's been the wrong choice. It's been because they see marriage as the goal, as opposed to living uh, God's vocation, God's call for you as the goal, and keeping your heart close to, to Christ first. So when the, those pains come, you know, don't let it push you into uh, just meeting somebody for the sake of meeting somebody. You bring that to Christ, and, and, and bring your heart to Christ, and uh, share your sufferings with Him. Christ was also single. He was also alone. And uh, very alone on the cross, and he understands that. Mm. Amen to that. And I think it helpful too um, to to pray for our friends who are in relationships because that can help kind of change your perspective on it too. Yeah, I have a really good friend, a uh, friend from high school who's been single for a long time, and he told me uh, one night uh, a year ago that he saw his vocation at that point in his life as being there for all of his married friends, being there for all of his friends with kids. And it was hard for him, but he also saw it as, as an act of love and an act of service in his way of uh, playing an active role in the Church. It was a beautiful way for him to live out his, his time there uh, as a single. And, and uh, for those who were married, I can tell you every single one of them was so grateful of uh, his love and how much he was able to give uh, to their families. Now, you kind of alluded to this in an earlier answer, but um, you don't think it's a good idea to try to find a way to distract yourself during this time of year? No, I mean, obviously, you don't want to be so wrapped up in in uh, this idea of, I'm single, what am I going to do? Enjoy the holidays, enjoy <laughs> yeah. your friends, enjoy your family. So uh, I, would, I would obviously recommend that. But don't try and bury this. Don't try and bury the, the, the fact that uh, you're single and, and that this is, you know, a painful time of year. I would, again, I would recommend um, embracing that. Christ sends sufferings to us in different forms, and He wants to use those sufferings uh, to bring us closer to Him. And so uh, I would definitely recommend embracing that part and bring it to prayer, bring it to people that you love as well. Uh, and then, of course, you know, uh, when the holidays come around, embrace the joy that do come with the holidays as well. And when you're uniting your sufferings to the Lord uh, to offer it up, perhaps for the holiness of your future spouse. Uh, One last question for you, Mark. 
For those who are married or have a significant other this time of year, what are some ways to help your single friends not fall into depression or the sin of envy because of you? <laughs> well, the first thing, and this will go for so many relatives and people that, that uh, you're close to, if, you, if there's somebody close in your life, just be sensitive first and foremost. Uh, a lot of the pain comes from, again, people making what they think are well-natured comments and uh, you know, uncles and aunts maybe making what they think is a well-natured joke, <laughs> but it's really painful. So just be sensitive to that first and foremost. To invite somebody into your life, invite them to share within your, your family life during this time of year. Uh, there's, there's something beautiful about bringing in somebody who doesn't have anybody else into your family and participating in that life. That would be the second thing. And third, pray uh, for singles during this time. And, uh, and, and recognize, uh, I'll say two more things, actually. One would be pray for them. I'm going to get back to that. Recognize, though, the, the role that singles have to play in our church. This is one of the fastest-growing segments of our church, singles and adult singles and people who, who think they have a vocation to marriage uh, but are not finding that marriage. So recognize these people and understand uh, the role that they have to play within the church. Um, and then finally, getting back to the prayer, please do pray for our singles. Pray for the people on CatholicSingles.com and all the dating websites out there. They're actively looking for somebody. Uh, they need your prayers. We all need your prayers this time of year. Absolutely. And if uh, you are a Catholic single uh, interested in the online dating scene, CatholicSingles.com is a great place to go. You can go to CatholicSingles.com and uh, sign up there. We've been talking to Mark Doust. Mark, thank you so much. Some excellent thoughts today. All right. Thank you. And we've got a moment here, so I thought I would share part of a Christmas sermon written by St. Augustine. He says, There are three states of life pursued by the members of the Church of Christ, marriage, widowhood, and virginity. Because those states, those different manifestations of purity, were destined to be found in the holy members of Christ, all three states of life gave witness to Christ. In the first place, the conjugal state bore this witness, for when the Virgin Mary conceived, Elizabeth, the wife of Zachary, having already conceived, bore in her womb the herald of this judge. Holy Mary came to Elizabeth to greet her cousin. Thereupon the infant in Elizabeth's womb leaped for joy. He exalted, she prophesied. Here you have conjugal purity bearing witness to Christ. Where did the state of widowhood bear such witness? In the case of Anna. When the gospel was read recently, you heard that Anna was a holy widow with prophetic powers who, having lived seven of her 84 years with her husband, was constantly in the temple, worshiping in prayer both night and day. She, a widow, recognized Christ. She saw a tiny babe. She recognized the great God, and she bore him witness. You have then in her illustration of the state of widowhood. In Mary herself, we have an illustration of the virginal state. Let each one choose for himself which of these three states he will. That from St. Augustine. You're listening to a special best of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 21 past. Hello, I'm Father Bill Garrett. I'm a Dominican priest, and I have been asked to speak a few words about the importance of the Mass in the Dominican vocation for Sacred Heart Radio. The great saints of God are saints because God has made them saints. This is very evident in both the holiness and fruitfulness of St. Dominic's life. Possessed so strongly by the Spirit of God, it is not surprising that St. Dominic was a man of intense prayer, like Jesus himself. Since Jesus had prayed liturgically, 
and Dominic was a canon regular dedicated to liturgical prayer, Dominic made choral liturgical prayer an essential element in his new religious order of friars preachers. The Mass, the Liturgy of the Word and Eucharist, is the center of the Dominican preacher's spirituality. The Book of the Constitutions of the Order of Preachers, issued in 1984, has this to say, In the liturgy, together with Christ, the brethren glorify God for the eternal plan of His will and for the wonderful order of grace. In this, as in all else, Dominican preachers follow their Holy Father Dominic. The Eucharistic liturgy was the source and summit of Dominic's life. Many passages in the Acts of Canonization, which record the process studying the holiness of Dominic, describe Dominic's fervor at Mass. St. Dominic truly made present again the Paschal mystery at his Mass. For Dominic, Jesus' death on Calvary and its potential for making all holy were so real that he became involved deeply and emotionally as he offered the sacrifice of the altar. The Acts record that he frequently uttered loud groans and tears flowed from his eyes as he celebrated the Paschal mystery. Through faith, Dominic was present himself at Calvary. And many of the greatest artists have painted him at the foot of the cross in masterpieces of art. The Sunrise Morning Show continues on this Feast of St. John the Apostle. I'm Matt Swain, joined now by Steve Ray. He's online at catholicconvert.com. That's where you can find his books and resources and videos and figure out how to walk with him in the footsteps of Jesus and the Apostles. Steve, good morning. Good morning, Matt. Always good to be here with you and always good to talk about these great heroes. I don't get to talk about this guy much because his feast days, you know, just not very long after Christmas. He is, in some sense, one of my patron saints. Not many people realize this, but I go by my middle name. My full name is John Matthew Swaim, and my dad's name and grandfather and his grandfather were all Johns. So I have a special connection with John the Apostle. Um, if you could, first of all, just kind of start out by telling us a little bit about what John was doing when Jesus called him. Well, John was a fisherman. He was a member of a company run by Zebedee and his sons, uh, James and John, and they were also partners with Peter and Andrew. And they must have been a wealthy, well-to-do group of people, because when you go to Capernaum today and you see where Peter's house is, we're ha we'll be having Mass there in just about a week and a half, uh, in Capernaum, you'll see that the house was right between the harbor and the synagogue. It's kind of like living next door to the governor on Main Street, and only somebody that had some means, financial means, would be in a position like that. So these guys had a very successful fishing business. It says that Peter and Andrew were fishing, and John and James were cleaning the nets. And the early fathers said that there was a symbolism there, that Peter and Andrew were the evangelists. They were out catching. They were fishing. And John and James were the menders of the nets, or the caretakers of the church. They were the ones that fixed the church. They were kind of the caretakers. So they were on the shore, and Jesus walks along, and he sees them, and he calls them, and it says they left what they were doing, and they became his disciples. Very interesting that they would just get up and walk away. I think that they knew a little bit about Jesus. I don't think it was the first time that they met. I think that they had heard about him already because we know that Andrew and John were already disciples, but they weren't disciples of Jesus. It says that they were already disciples of John the Baptist. 
So they had already traveled back and forth down to the uh, Jerusalem, the Jordan River area, and that's, that's a good four or five day walk. They'd already traveled back and forth to see John the Baptist and were already his disciples, and later when they were with Jesus, they even said, Jesus, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples to pray. So John and Andrew were disciples of John the Baptist. I think that they may have even seen the dove come down because they were his disciples. So when Jesus came along, I think they were already had been introduced to Jesus, had contemplated this, and when he came along called them, they said, hey, that's the guy, we better follow him. I think that's how it pretty much took place. All right, so if people want to dig into some really in-depth and actually really fun discussions about this. You've got a book, a Bible study guide and commentary on St. John's Gospel from Ignatius Press, and I very much encourage people to check this out. But I want to kind of throw something out there that people hear a lot and maybe don't understand what it means. So sometimes we'll talk about the synoptic Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, by which we mean everybody but John, Um, because John is kind of... The one of these things is not like the other. I mean, John doesn't start... I mean, Mark just kind of dives in and gets straight to the passion, right? The ministry of Jesus and the passion. Mark, uh, Matthew and Luke are like, well, Jesus was born, and here's how it came about. John starts, in the beginning was the Word. <laughs> so yeah, you know you're right. getting a different kind of deal with John. So how does he approach telling the story of Jesus? Well, very good. Uh, the, the book I wrote, just to mention, is 450 pages. It took two years of my life. It was two of the best years I ever had writing that book. And it's funny, a lot of times, you didn't do it today, but a lot of times on radio shows or on television, they'll say, Steve Ray, the author of St. John's Gospel. Oh, I said, really? I didn't write that. I hope not. <laughs> I just wrote a comment. You'd be an old man. <laughs> but John's Gospel begins differently, and here's how I describe it. If you see an accident on the corner of Main Street and Maple, and you have four different people that see that, one is on the 17th floor of the Hilton, one's in the car, and one's on the north side, and one's on the west side, you're going to have four different stories of that accident from different perspectives that tell it in different ways, but it's all the same accident. It's all the same story. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each are from different perspectives explaining the life and ministry of Jesus, and each one has his own audience and their own way of telling the story. Matthew is writing for the Jews to convince them that Jesus is their king. Mark is writing for the Romans to show them the power of Jesus, the servant. So you've got king and servant, two opposites. Luke is writing to explain Jesus as the ideal man to a Greek world. And then John is presenting him as God. Again, two opposites, God and man. So you have four different perspectives with four different presentations. And Matthew is the story of Joseph. That's Joseph's perspective, and Luke is a st- Mary's story, and that's the birth of Jesus. But John does something very different. What's the genealogy in Matthew? He's the king, so he starts with Abraham and David and through the kings, and then here comes Jesus through the line of the kings. He's royal. He's your king, Israel. Mark presents him as a servant. There is no genealogy. Servants don't have genealogy. Who cares where a servant comes from? He just starts right out with his ministry and his power. Straight away he did this, and he power and might. Luke presents him as the ideal man, and so where does he start? All the way back with Adam and Eve. All the way with Adam and Eve through all the kings and Jesus. Where, where did Jesus come from? He come all the way from Adam and Eve. All the way. He's the ideal man. Now, John's genealogy is very different. He's presenting him as God. So what's Jesus' genealogy? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He doesn't have a beginning. From all of eternity, he is there as a member of the three persons of the Trinity, and then the Word became flesh. 
He took on a tent, is what the word, that he became flesh. It really says he tabernacled. He took on a tent. And what is the tent? The tent is his body. God is indwelling a human body. He becomes a man. So those are the four different ones. And John, I think, is just so fascinating how he presents the beginning of Jesus on the earth by saying that he's been forever existent in heaven before he got here. You know, Steve, I was not sitting in the balcony at the councils of Hippo and Carthage, and I haven't had a chance to really hang out and look over the shoulder of guys like Irenaeus and Athanasius as they were telling you what goes in the New Testament, especially the Gospels. So I can't answer this question fully. I don't know why Matthew, Mark, and Luke are in the order they are. But I think I have a pretty good idea why John is the last of the four Gospels because of the way that John ends the last chapter of his gospel in John 21, 25, he says this, and this is the way you're going to have to end the story if you're going to tell the story of Jesus. He says, there are also many other things which Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would have to be written. I mean, that's how you, that's ultimately where you have to leave it if you're telling the story of Jesus. Yep, it is. It's, you, there's no way you can capsulize this guy. Try to summarize him. Try to put him in a box. Try to write a book about him, and you're going to fail because there's just way too much to this guy. And, you know, I had the exact same experience when I made my movie called Jesus. The Word, God, the word Became Flesh. And I remember, Matt, I was in, at Mass, and I was so overwhelmed with the idea, how can I tell the story of Jesus in 90 minutes? And I got up and walked out of the Mass just to catch my breath during the, uh, the offertory. And a man came out and followed me out, and he said, um, Sir, I don't know why God wanted me to tell you this, but he just told me to tell you, don't worry about a thing. He'll take care of it, and it will be a success. And he turned around and walked back into the Mass. I burst into tears. How can you explain the whole life of Jesus, who came down from heaven in 90 minutes or in a gospel book? It's relatively impossible, and yet it's been done. And this book on John's Gospel is a perfect example. It is a marvelous example. And the early church called it a spiritual gospel. And the way I explain this, Matt, is it's like going across the Sea of Galilee in a boat. It's a beautiful ride. If you read the surface of Gospel of John, it's like rowing across the Sea of Galilee. You see the birds flying in the trees and the clouds and the fish jumping out of the water. But if you put on scuba gear and you dive off the boat into the bottom, into the water, there's a whole other world under there. And that's what the Gospel of John is like. It's read the surface, it's wonderful, but if you take the time like I did for two years to write this book, and you dive into the Gospel, you'll find there are deep spiritual truths and double meanings. Oh, just unbelievable. I can never get tired of studying the Gospel of John. Well, I'll hit at one of those double meanings and extra layers, and I know I'm asking a 25-minute question with two minutes left, but I'm going to do it anyway, Steve. I didn't realize until just a few years ago that if the only gospel we had was the gospel of John, we wouldn't know Jesus' mom's name because yeah. he always refers to her as woman because he's trying to paint that picture of who she represents in all of salvation history. And that's just one example of a number of ways that he's trying to tell you there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye. Oh, and he gives little hints and clues. For example, of what I, I love to do this on the shore of Galilee where it happened, where it says that there's a charcoal fire. And I ask, why does John say twice a charcoal fire instead of just fire? Nowhere else in the Bible is a charcoal fire. John uses it twice, and he does it to draw a point. Peter denied Jesus in front of a charcoal fire. 
when he had a, a denied Jesus, he, and it was three girls, said, three questions. You're one of his. I deny him. You're one of his. I deny him. You're one of his. I deny him. And then later, there's another charcoal fire, and he gets asked three questions in front of another charcoal fire. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Well, if you stop and meditate on that, I give a half an hour talk just on that passage alone. And it's on my website, by the way. Somebody goes to my Footprints of God page, but it's that right there, those two little nuggets. And I found that only by looking up the word charcoal fire. Why does he use it twice? And then I meditated on it and saw each charcoal fire had three questions, once three denials, and then another one, three affirmations so that he could redeem himself. The Gospel of John is so rich, there's no way you can ever study it fully in a lifetime. Even if you read Steve Ray's book, Steve Ray is not the author of St. John's Gospel, but he is the author of a book called St. John's Gospel, a Bible study guide and commentary. It's available from Ignatius Press. We've got it linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Go pick it up and do a deep dive into the fourth gospel and find out what St. John tells us about who Jesus is. Steve Ray, we've got you linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. CatholicConvert.com is right there. Have a great day and happy Feast of St. John. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on and keep up the good work. I'm Matt Swain. Thanks for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 35 minutes past the hour. Business owners are starting to think outside the box to find new customers. You can reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners by underwriting the Sunrise Morning Show. Each weekday morning, listeners across the U.S. and around the globe can hear your message for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on the Sunrise Morning Show. To find out how it works, email me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. I'm Father Timothy Shear, and these are Biblical Impressions. Family values is a phrase we are all very familiar with. Of course, the early church had family values, too. We can see this from Acts of the Apostles, where we actually meet several generations of a family that Luke held in high esteem. Timothy worked by Paul's side for a long time, joining the apostle during the second missionary journey to Asia Minor. Timothy's family, at least the women in his family, were also Christian and apparently well-known in the early church. Paul preserves their names for us. Timothy's mother was Eunice, and his grandmother was Lois. We get no further description of Eunice and Lois, but we do get to see them through their son and grandson. Timothy's dedication to the church, his unrelenting work for the truth, his preaching of the gospel, and his love of the Lord. So although we cannot see Eunice and Lois, physically we can see them faith-wise through their son. What a beautiful example of family values. For Sacred Heart Radio, I'm Father Timothy Shear. Gary Zimak joins us from the Philadelphia area. He's the author of a number of books that address worry and anxiety from a biblical perspective, and that's usually the focus of our conversations once a week. Gary, good morning. Hey, Matt, good morning. So the verse we are focusing on today, I would bet 
that a large number of our listeners have this verse memorized and don't realize it. I totally agree. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, Matt, the problem that I see with this verse is we are just so comfortable with it. We're so familiar with it. We're also so familiar with this concept that God became man that we often overlook just how important this verse really is. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's a line that a lot of us hear in the Angelus, um, those of us who pray it either at 6 a.m. or noon or 6 p.m. or whenever the church bells ring the Angelus tones. Um, and traditionally, Gary, we are supposed to kneel when we say this part or bow. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. How many Bible verses do we bow or kneel every time we hear them pronounced? It's a great point. It's a great point because this is such an important event. God loved us so much, he didn't want to redeem us from a distance. And I think, I think that's the important thing to remember. And, and, and Matt, the other, the other important message that I get from this, this very common, very familiar verse is that God's ways are not our ways. You know, when we look at the plan of how we were redeemed, that Jesus came to earth in the form of an infant, so that he could grow up and die on a cross. I mean, we could look at that and say, that makes no sense. There's got to be a better way. And I think for those of us who tend to be anxious, we can look at how God's working in our lives, look at this verse and say, wait a minute, even though it doesn't make sense to me, he knows what he's doing. And And I think that's an important thing to remember. It's a hugely important thing to remember. And Gary, um, it, this is sort of mentioned a little bit in De Verbum, um, the Vatican II document on sacred scripture. Um, it's something also that Benedict the Sixteenth uh, mentioned a few times. Um, there are a lot of religions out there that are called religions of the book, um, but the Church reminds us that we are a religion of the Word, um, and that's that. Those are similar things, but they're distinct things. Um, to be a religion of the Word means that. We're not just tied to the idea of just all of our, everything that we believe coming from just a, a set of texts. The Word of God is alive. The Word of God is a person. That's exactly right, and that's important for us to remember. And as Catholics, we believe, as you said, that the Word of God consists of both sacred scripture and sacred tradition with a capital T. You know, when we look at Christ when he, when he was here on earth, he didn't, before he ascended into heaven, hand Bibles out to all the apostles and say, all right, guys, take it from here. You know, he established a church, and from that church grew the Bible and also the tradition that we hold to. So that's a really important point. It's not just, and we certainly recognize sacred scripture as the, the Word of God, um, the written Word of God, but there's more to it than that, as you said. Well, the idea of Jesus being the Word who became flesh. When you think about the Word of God uh, in Scripture prior to you know Christ becoming incarnate, I mean, how does creation come into existence? God speaks His Word, right? I mean, this is no ordinary baby being born in Bethlehem. Uh, this is the Word of God, the creative Word of God becoming flesh and making His dwelling among us. Uh, that baby was involved in the creation of everything you and I see around us. Uh, why wouldn't we be able to put our trust in him? 
Exactly. And Matt, you know, if somebody's listening and saying, well, wait a minute, these guys are getting a little too deep, too conceptual for us. I've got problems. How does this help me? I would say this. This is such a simple and powerful message. Number one, God loves you. He loves you so much that he was willing to come to earth and to suffer and share in our suffering for you so that he could redeem you. So he also gets what it means to have problems. He gets what it means to suffer. He gets what it means to be rejected. And also remember this, that Jesus, even as a baby, was able to have an influence on people. He was able to help people. So he didn't even have to say anything, and he was already doing things. People who were in his presence were uh, acknowledging him. And, of course, Simeon, we see when, when he was presented in the temple, Simeon reacted that he was waiting to see the Savior. God told him he would see the Savior, and here it is. It happened. So the Lord is with us all today. He can help us with our problems. We can take comfort in the fact that he loves us so much that he came to earth. And yeah, and also God's plan. On the surface, it looks like one that doesn't make sense, but obviously he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing in each of our lives, and that whole idea comforts me. Well, the idea, you mentioned the idea of, you know, things being conceptual and let's make them practical. That's what happens when the word became flesh. The conceptual became the practical. As W.H. Uh, Auden uh, writes in his Christmas oratorio, the infinite became a finite fact, right? Yep. <laughs> Jesus took on yeah. human flesh. Um, he's no longer, uh, you know, just, I say just, he's no longer just a member of the Trinity up there in some ethereal uh, boundary. Um, God was God has always cared about his people and has always been eminent and loving and involved with his people. But when Jesus becomes flesh, uh, that's an unprecedented level. I mean, there is no other religion on the planet where this is this is the case, uh, where God actually takes on human form with all its weaknesses and becomes one of us. Uh, that's exactly. that's a God we can identify with. Exactly, and he can't get any closer than that. And Matt, you know, I can help the homeless without being homeless myself. I can help missionaries without traveling to foreign countries. The Lord could have redeemed us in any number of ways, but he said, no, I'm going to come here and live and dwell among you. That's how much I love you. And that makes powerful, me really happy, Matt. That's powerful. an yeah, right? A powerful verse to meditate on. Gary Zimak, thanks so much. Again, the verse John 1.14 we've been uh, reflecting on today. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Think about that and meditate upon it next time you hear the Angelus played on Catholic Radio. In the meantime, Gary, if our listeners want to connect with you, what's a good way to do so? Best place is my website, followingthetruth.com. Linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Thanks, Gary. Have a blessed day. Thanks, brother. You too. I'm Matt Swaim, and you're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. Back after this. The Christmas Means Life campaign encourages you to add another person to your Christmas list, the baby Jesus, as represented by women and children in need by making a donation to your local pregnancy center. Another option is to support the JP2 Life Center, committed to saving lives with free pregnancy help services, holistic OBGYN care, and education programs. Find out more at jpiilifecenter.org. That's jpiilifecenter.org. Because Christmas means life. Looking for peace? Longing for joy? God is calling you to know and love Jesus Christ like never before and to help others do the same. God is calling you to bring Ignatian prayer into the suffering world, to work for the new evangelization 
Here's your opportunity. Go to LordTeachMeToPray.com. Order the free digital training and facilitator manual. LordTeachMeToPray.com. Click on the red button now. God is calling you. Underwritten by Lord Teach Me To Pray. Business owners are starting to think outside the box to find new customers. You can reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners by underwriting the Sunrise Morning Show. Each weekday morning, listeners across the U.S. and around the globe can hear your message for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on the Sunrise Morning Show. To find out how it works, email me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. The EWTN on-demand platform features 50 new podcasts every week, as well as an ever-expanding library of audio and video content. For Catholics who want to learn more about their faith, simply using their mobile device, computer, or TV. Your favorite EWTN programs are available 24-7. Visit EWTN.com and click On Demand. EWTN is the Global Catholic Network. With us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Dr. Marcellino D'Ambrosio with the Crossroads Initiative. He's the host alongside Jeff Cavins and Dr. Edward Shree of Jesus, the Way, the Truth, and the Life from Ascension Press. And you can go to DRItaly.com to check out his books, all his resources, and of course, his upcoming pilgrimages as well. Good morning, Doc. Welcome back. Good morning, and it's a pleasure to be back. It is a pleasure to have you. And we're going to be talking about the childhood of Jesus today. Of course, during the Christmas season, we celebrate the Feast of the Holy Family, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, who started off their life together as refugees, didn't they? Isn't that amazing? They started off their life walking. Just amazing, amazing journey of uh, 250 miles or so from Bethlehem to Egypt, and then another 350 miles back to Nazareth. And Nazareth is one of the focuses of the second session of Jesus, the Way, the Truth, and the Life. We spend some time in Nazareth, and Jeff Cavins and I are, are there, and we're, we're walking through the area of ancient Nazareth, which was really small. Uh, we're talking really maybe 50 homes. And the homes in those days in, in that area were what we call courtyard houses. And if you can picture this, we actually have in the, in the study guide of this series, we have a, a reconstruction of the house that Peter lived in in Capernaum, because that's been found. Mm-hmm. And we actually visit that in another session. Um, so that house, exact house where Peter lived with Andrew, Peter's mother-in-law, where Jesus most probably stayed, you know, we actually know what that looks like. And wow. uh, the, the houses in Nazareth looked the same. Keep in mind, you know, people in, in that time in the Holy Land, didn't have the same lifestyle as we have today. Not just did they not have cars and things like that, but they lived in extended family units. Um, in fact, everybody in Nazareth was probably related. You know, first cousins, second cousins, or you know, people are all around in the area, and um, it's just, it's a different kind of a of a lifestyle. You know, in the same courtyard, um, you have small little rooms along the walls and with an open courtyard in the middle. So people, you know, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph were pictured as a holy family together, just the three of them. But they weren't together alone, just the three of them, all that much because of the lifestyle (laughs) that they lived. And um, one of the things that's just really amazing is the, the trips that they took together to Jerusalem for the feasts. This was so much a part of the rhythm of their life. It's a seven-day walk pretty much down to Jerusalem. And so think about the whole town pretty much emptying out 
people are traveling together in a caravan. So you're with your cousins, you're with your uncles and your aunts. Um, you might be with your grandparents as well if they're still alive, you know. And it's like a seven-day camping trip down in Jerusalem. And then you're celebrating and you're seeing the glory of the temple. And there's 100,000, 150,000 people there. It's a big celebration. And then there's seven-day camping trip back, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine, if, I mean, that's something that we know about the lifestyle of Jesus growing up. And uh, some of those relatives of his are known. They're mentioned in Mark's gospel. One of them becomes James. He's called the brother of the Lord uh, because he's such a close relative, you know. And um, But he's, he's actually a cousin. And he becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem and the author of the, the epistle to James. So it's kind of cool to, 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 um, to kind of think about a little bit more that, that kind of lifestyle. That, that Jesus lived growing up. And you think about James, he would have known Jesus growing up throughout this childhood. You know, it, they call the time between uh, the finding of the boy Jesus in the temple and the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan, the quote unquote hidden years of his childhood in Nazareth. But you say we actually know more than we think about this. Why is that? Well, there, first of all, there you go in terms of the lifestyle that Jesus lived. We know that. We know that based on um, the lifestyle of people, and we can see that right in the excavations, what the, the town was like, um, and just that kind of intimacy. But the other thing is, we know about the, the life of prayer that is, Israelites lived at that time. And we know that, that rhythm of that life. And who was Jesus's key mentor? Jewish men and Jewish women prayed separately. They actually had different duties in terms of their prayer uh, expectations. Men had a higher level of of prayer and they prayed together. So it's dad who teaches son how to pray, not just dad, but uncles and grandfathers. So the men pray together and they start teaching the most important prayer to a, a little boy as soon as he's able to talk. In fact, the prayer is whispered into his ear right after he's born and he hear, the, the baby hears it being said every day. And that is Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And, and that was said first thing in the morning. It was said last thing before going to bed. And it was whispered into the ear of newborns and whispered into the ears of the dying. It was like the, the heartbeat of Jewish prayer. And Joseph would have taught that to Jesus uh, from the very beginning. He did that from the, the time he was a child. And, you know, this is part of, too, the teaching of the church on the incarnation, is that Jesus redeemed us by his death, of course, and his glorious resurrection. And those are the culminating moments, and they had to happen. But all throughout Jesus' life, from the beginning of humanity and divinity being joined together in the conception of Jesus, which happened in Nazareth, you know, uh, from that moment, God and man were united, and, and Jesus walking through all the stages of life, loving God perfectly and his neighbor perfectly without interruption, even as a child, this is part of what redeems us. But the other thing is that, that Jewish men and women prayed three times a day, and it was timed with some things that happened in the temple. The temple sacrifice, the first sacrifice was 9 a.m., so people gathered all over the Holy Land to even if they couldn't be at the temple to pray at 9 a.m. in the morning. The evening sacrifice was 3 p.m. in the time of Jesus. And that's amazing that Jesus died right at the time of the evening sacrifice, which was the principal time of prayer. And then when the temple gates were closed at sundown, they prayed again. So Jesus would have been praying with Joseph 
and probably his male cousins in many cases and, and some of his uncles. Imagine this, this kind of discipleship and prayer that every Jew went through. But this was part of Joseph's job to mentor Jesus in prayer and to begin teaching him about age five how to read the words of the Torah and um, in Hebrew. And so Joseph would have been Jesus' first teacher to read. And there weren't really schools at this point in time. In larger towns, um, there, there were places in the synagogue where, where boys would have additional training. We don't know in Nazareth, you know, if they had a, a teacher, a tutor beyond the fathers to teach young men. But it, this is the intimacy between father and son in, in Jewish family. Um, that Jesus had with Joseph. So it just helps us to understand how important Joseph's role was in discipling the one who would disciple the 12 and all of us. Um, it's a pretty amazing thing, honestly. And really kind of amazing, too, when you think about it. This is the God of the universe who is coming down as a child and humbling himself to even learn the prayers that he would have been hearing prayed to him from time and eternity. Isn't that amazing? You know, it says to us in Luke after the, the episode of him going to the temple with his family and being, you know, and being left behind by mistake, you know, and talking to the teachers and all, the last thing that said is that he went to them with them and was subject to them, Mary and Joseph, and he grew in wisdom, in age, and in grace before God and before man. Now, that reflects exactly what was said about the boy Samuel who grew up in the temple, you know, and is left there by his mom. So it's meant to re remind us of, of Jesus fulfilling this role of the consecrated one, the great prophet Samuel in the Old Testament. But also it helps us understand that he was truly man. And in his human nature, he had to develop and learn and grow. And Joseph and Mary had an amazing responsibility in, in helping that to happen. So that, that, that's important for us to understand. The fact that he is truly God doesn't mean that he's also not truly man having to develop as a human being. Absolutely. And these are all places that you take people to reflect on these moments. They're known as the silent years or the hidden years. As you say, we know a lot more about it than we think. But, I mean, it must be an incredible moment to be in these sites where Jesus spent his childhood. It's amazing, and that's why I, I can't stop myself, and neither can Jeff, uh, from taking people back there. And Ted, Sri, also, we all take people to the Holy Land on pilgrimage. And uh, whether you can go or not, this series takes you on amazing pilgrimage there. Um, so I, I really recommend people to get the series, Jesus is the Way, the Truth, and the Life. And if you can come with me, you can go to DrItaly.com and get information about the pilgrimage. And also, it's some information about Jesus, the Way, the Truth, and the Life from Ascension Press. DrItaly.com and all kinds of great information there, too. I uh, did a little search on Childhood of Jesus at the Crossroads Initiative site and found a beautiful reflection that he posted from Pope St. Paul VI on the Holy Family that I'd really encourage folks to go check out. Again, DrItaly.com, which is linked at SunriseMorningShow.com. Dr. D'Ambrosio, always good talking to you. Thank you so much again for joining us today. Great talking with you, Anna. God bless. You too. Thank you so much. All right, that'll do it for this special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. For Matt Swaim and Paul Lockman, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace. <laughs>